you will turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we will be looking at verses 4 and 5 particularly. And uh, the title of our sermon is Sola Gratia, Grace Alone. Our key words for our worshipers in training are grace, saved, and born. Grace. Christians talk about it often. We sing about it regularly. We sang about it this morning in our songs. We use it in our expressions of thankfulness, in our conversations. We want grace to be shown to us. And yet, how well do we truly understand what grace actually is? Now, anyone who calls themselves a Christian says that they believe that grace is a gift from God and even a necessary gift from God if we are to have a true expression of salvation. But grace and how it is understood is actually a much more significant dividing line than most people realize. It divided Augustine from Pelagius, and Aquinas from Beale, and Luther from Erasmus, and Perkins from Arminius. So to just mention grace as a Christian concept without working through what it actually is, and what it actually means, and how it plays out, and how it works, is to not say, to not say anything of much controversy. However, when we add another important word... A significant, world-changing word to grace, the dividing lines are quickly drawn. That word is sola, or alone. Grace alone. Sola gratia. Well, this year we are looking at principles of the Protestant Reformation as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of what God did beginning in October of 1517. And we looked last time at the place of the Scriptures in the church. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, as the sole source of ultimate authority in the Christian's life, in, uh, in the functioning of the church, the sufficient, inerrant, infallible Word of God. We said historically it was, it was vital for the Reformers to identify the Bible as the sure source of authority in opposition to the claim that the church or, or popes or councils were to be considered the infallible source of interpretation of what God has said to His people. By the 16th century, when the Reformation began, only a few decades had passed since the Word of God was more readily available to common people. And even then, many didn't know how to read. Most of them did not understand the Latin in which it was written. And so everyone depended on the teaching of the church, which by this point had strayed far afield from what the Bible actually says. And so the first critical principle of the Reformation was established on, and I sought to show us last time we talked, was uh, that we ought to base all of our lives upon the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture alone. Not our church, not our pastors, not books by great authors. As good and necessary and helpful as those things are, they are only as good and necessary as helpful as they conform and rely upon the Word of God. So this morning we move to the second of the five solas of the Reformation. The five alone statements in the Reformation 
that all of it was built upon. Sola Scriptura kicked us off, and this morning we look at Sola Gratia. And we are making the bold claim that, that not only are Christians saved by grace, a point that is not argued over or disputed in any meaningful sense by anyone who calls themselves a Christian, but Christians are saved by grace alone, which is disputed throughout the history and teaching of many professing Christians and churches in both actual doctrine but also in subtle practices. And my challenge for all of us in our our thinking this morning is to ask ourselves if we really believe what the Bible teaches about our salvation being by grace alone. Now, I'm not talking intellectually. I'm, I'm sure most of us probably wouldn't have any problem accepting that the Bible teaches that we are, in fact, saved by grace alone intellectually. We believe that's what it teaches. But do we really believe it's true? And what I mean by that is, how does it look in our own practice? How does that play out in our day-to-day lives and how we think about how we live before God and how we think about our own salvation, that is the trickier issue. So what is grace and what does it mean that it's a gift from God and that we are saved by grace alone and how should we live in light of this great truth? That's where we're headed this morning. There are many different places in the Bible that we could go to look at this, but I want to focus our attention on Paul's letter to the Ephesians and one of the most well-known sections of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2 where we get the full breadth of the gospel. So let's look together, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read for context, but we will focus our attention on verses 4 and 5. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can find it on page 976. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, sola gratia was a significant issue in the Protestant Reformation because the primary teaching that they were refuting in the Roman Catholic Church, which is still the teaching of Rome today, is that salvation is a process. And that process has many steps. Grace is received from God. Faith is in the believer. And those things are joined together with good works, with baptism, with participation in the seven sacraments, penance, paying indulgences, and keeping the commandments. So there are other things that are added to as extras in this pilgrimage uh, that, uh, that 
all pay into whether or not one will know true salvation. So basically, salvation is attained through baptism and good works, and God's grace uh, sort of gets, uh, gets things going. It is maintained by good works. It is maintained by participation in the sacraments. And if lost, salvation can be regained through the sacrament of penance, which only a Catholic priest can administer. And you add to that a, a purgatorial cleansing after one dies, and we find in large parts one of the main issues of the Reformation, and especially for the reformer Martin Luther. Now, the Reformers looked at their Bibles and they concluded over and over again that the teaching of Rome was not, of course, that if you are saved by grace, it is grace alone, but they realized that everything they had understood up until that point was completely contrary to what the Bible was clearly teaching, which is that there is not anything for which we can take credit. And therefore, we play no part in our salvation. So you see, there is not, this is not a peripheral matter. This is, this is not something we can set aside and say we just agree to disagree on. There are things we can agree to disagree on, but this is not one of them. It's not a matter of just expressing the same thing with different words. No, we're talking about the heart of the faith. We're talking about the heart of the gospel and the difference between whether or not we are saved of God or saved by our own efforts. But before we get too far down the road, let's define what we are talking about. What is grace and what does it mean that it is a gift from God? We'll consider these things under two headings this morning what it is and what, it's, what it means that it's a gift from God, and then we will think about what it means to live in light of it. So first, what is grace, and what does it mean that it is a gift from God? Once there was a woman who sought to assassinate Queen Elizabeth of England, and she dressed herself in a disguise as a male page, and she hid herself in the queen's closet, and and she was awaiting the convenient moment when the queen was alone so that that she could stab her to death in the heart. And, And she didn't realize, though, that the queen's attendants would be very careful to search the rooms of Her Majesty. And as they came in, They would search around the closets, and they found this woman hidden in among her gowns in the closet, and they brought her into the presence of the queen, and after confiscating the dagger that she had hoped to plant into the heart of Elizabeth, the woman realized that her case was hopeless, and she threw herself down on her knees and pleaded and begged with the queen that she, as a woman, should, should receive compassion from the queen, another woman, and she pled and asked her that she would show her grace. Well, Queen Elizabeth looked at her coldly and quietly, and she said, if I show you grace, what promise will you make me for the future? And the woman looked up and said, grace, grace that has conditions, grace that is fettered by precautions is not grace at all. And Queen Elizabeth caught the idea in a moment and said, you are right. And so I pardon you of my grace. And they led her away, a free woman. Grace, you see, is a gift. But not only is grace a gift, grace is an undeserved gift. It is an unearned gift. And it is a gift that is given in light of the fact that you have done something in which what you actually deserve is judgment. 
is punishment, is a penalty. You see, it's very simple for us as Christians that we understand that grace is the unmerited favor of God toward us, but we need to remember that it's not just God's favor toward us, it's, it's His favor toward us in light of the fact that we deserve everlasting judgment because of our rejection of Jesus as King and our transgression of His good and righteous and holy law. But to fill this in a bit more, we need to realize that that grace is not just a divine sentiment. It's not a decision or tendency of God to just sort of overlook sin like like sometimes we might do as parents in dealing with our disobedient children. Now, many people think of grace as being nothing more than, than God sort of turning a blind eye to human rebellion, which is why many people use grace inappropriately as, a, as a, an excuse to sin. But what the Bible shows us over and over again is, is that grace is far more than an attitude. It is far more than a sentiment of God. In fact, in no way whatsoever does God ever God has never turned a blind eye to sin. God never winks at sin. God never simply overlooks sin. Every single sin that has ever or will ever be committed either was punished by Jesus on the cross where He paid the penalty or we are made to pay the penalty forever in eternal judgment. So you see, grace cannot be that, gra- that God just turns a blind eye and says, no sweat, don't worry about it, I've got you covered. That's not what grace is. Our text addresses that. You see, we read the first part of chapter 2 where it explains our condition. You are dead in your transgressions, your trespasses and sins, following after the world, following after your flesh, following after the devil, and doing what our evil hearts want to do in rejection of God and what He desires from us. But I I want you to notice two of the sweetest words you will ever read in all of Scripture. Whenever you see these two words together, pay attention, because what you're going to see is something Glorious! You're going to see something that you cannot and you will not see anywhere else. You're going to see something that can absolutely change your life forever. Look at verse 4. But God. Everything in the preceding verses about sin, all of it is true about you. All of it is true about me. You and me, dead in our transgressions and sins, following after the things of the world, following after the evil desires of our flesh, following after the temptations of the devil. All of that is true. We are spiritually dead. And our only option because of our nature is to do nothing other than to sin. Our only desire is to follow after these things. We are set against God in hostility. And the wages of that sin... The wages of that sin is death, is everlasting judgment. And yet Paul reminds us, but God, but God did something. You see, those two words are pregnant with hope and assurance. It is indeed who we are apart from Christ without question, without a doubt that we are sinful. We are rebellious, but God, 
But God, being rich in mercy and out of great love, even in the midst of all of it, makes us alive together with Christ. And how does He do it? He does it by grace alone. That's what Paul is writing in verses 4 and 5. By grace and grace alone, because God is merciful. Because because God has a great love for us that we can be made alive together with Christ. From death to life. So the good news of the Gospel is that God doesn't just... He doesn't just leave us. People created in His own image without hope. God acts and God does what only God can do to save and He does so completely out of His nature, completely out of His own willingness to do so for His own glory. So Paul paints this this very dark picture of humanity's reality, of our sinfulness, of, of our brokenness. We, are, we aren't just sort of treading water and hoping to get by. We're dead at the bottom of the ocean. And then with those two words, He pulls us from the bottom of the ocean and we come out to the surface and He breathes life into our lungs. But it's no longer the old man. It's a new man. It's a new woman. It's a new person. Our old hearts have been replaced with new hearts. Our old wicked desires have been put to death and our new desires to honor Christ. Our old hatred for God's law has become a love for what God requires. It is with those two words that He illuminates this incredible nature of God's grace to dispel the darkness and bring His children into the light. That is is what grace is, from death to life. Lifeless in the ground, immediately brought to new life. And notice, God doesn't place arbitrary stipulations on us to receive His grace. His intent is not malicious. He doesn't devise a list of challenges to complete. He doesn't give us hoops to jump through, or uh, He doesn't give us anything to work hard at with sincerity. But there is a problem here. There there is something we have to deal with because in order for God to find us acceptable, we must be one thing. We must be holy. The problem is that we're not. Even the most secular-minded person will admit to you that they are not perfect. And yet God's requirement is perfection. Jesus says, be perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. But we're not. We're not holy, and that's the problem that has to be dealt with. And why so many people get grace all wrong, because the thought is, well, well, God requires that I'm holy. And so, to be holy, I have to do good works. And and I'm going to do good works and prove that I'm holy by doing my good works. And and I can prove to God by my good works that I'm holy. And then then God's grace will get me the rest of the way. So grace, for those who think that way, is sort of a little nudge we need to get over the top after we've done all that we can do ourselves. And, and, And really, truly, it's understandable that we might think that way, especially as 
Westerners. We live our entire lives being reminded of the need to work hard and that nothing in this life happens without us getting out there and giving it our full effort. And then we see that we are called to live in light of who God is and what He has commanded, which is moral perfection. And we see that God is absolutely morally perfect. His his perfection is all-encompassing. It is so beyond the scope of our imagination that we are amazed and in awe that we will worship Him for eternity. And, And so our tendency is to want to say, well, I can't get all the way there, but I'm going to try my hardest and God's grace will fill in the gaps but we can't. We can't even come close to doing a fraction of what God calls us to in perfection. But God requires, still requires that holiness from us. But of course, we've already identified the problem. We're not, we can't be, we never will be in this life. But again, we said, God doesn't give us a difficult task to complete. He doesn't give us a difficult standard to meet. No, in fact, none of this is is difficult at all because God's standard is impossible. It's not difficult, it's impossible. You can't do it, I cannot do it. So grace, the the but God of verse 4 is critical. It is essential. Without it, you and I are hopeless because if you and I are to have any hope at all, God must act. And if God doesn't act, we are without hope. But how does God act? Well, enter Christ. Enter Christ, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world by His sacrifice and His payment for our sins on our behalf. God counts us as holy And this and this alone qualifies us for the inheritance. God acts decisively at every point along the way to ensure our good. Why? Because He is merciful and loving. He transforms spiritually dead and utterly sinful people into living, breathing followers of Jesus Christ. Alive, You see that in verse 5? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. How did He do it? By grace you have been saved. We were dead, God acted, and now we are alive. And, and please understand this. This is really important. God is not gracious toward me because Jesus died for me. God is not gracious toward me because Jesus died for me. No, Jesus Christ died for me because God is gracious toward me. And that may not sound like a big deal to you, but it is a huge, significant deal. We have to be clear about that. What Jesus did on the cross isn't what made God gracious toward me. If that's the case, then verses like John 3.16 don't make any sense. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God did that because He first loved us. It was because of His love for His people that He gave His Son. And that's important because it highlights the fact that God really does love you. And His grace towards you is motivated by His love for you. For you. 
God is gracious because he loves you. And so he sent Jesus to take the penalty of sin that was yours to pay, that you might live and dwell with him forever and ever. So we see Paul's description of this amazing accomplishment on our behalf. It shows what happens when all that God has achieved on our behalf, sending Christ, atoning for our sins, conquering death, choosing us in Him, actually all of this, how all of this actually comes into our lives. God did not send Jesus to accomplish some abstract idea, something with no practical impact. He did it so that He could actually apply Christ's works to our lives. Everything we have in Christ, forgiveness of sins, membership in the body of Christ, fellowship with God Himself is the gift of God as a result of what Jesus has accomplished. God loved us. God showed grace to us. He sent Jesus to die for us, to take the penalty for us. And the exchange is that all the benefits of Christ are added to us. John Wesley wrote the great hymn, And Can It Be? And I think it does a good job describing the but God of verse 4. You know the words, Long my imprisoned spirit laid, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose went forth, and followed thee. The saving grace of God sets us free from bondage, and every believer shares that very same experience. Whether converted when you're young or when you're old, whether you were saved from a life of horrendous evil or prideful moralism, all of us must be brought to life by God's Spirit All of us must have our sins taken away. And the only way any of us can do that is by God's grace alone in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. When this happens in a believer's life, we can have assurance. I'm not going to always have to be worried as to whether or not I've done enough, if I've worked hard enough, if I've, I've pushed far enough and done all that was required of me. When I understand this, when I understand that I was in the dungeon and, and God sent the light and broke the chains and set me free that I might walk with Him, I don't have to worry about tomorrow and I don't have to worry about when I die what's going to happen. I can truly say No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. So bold I approach the eternal throne and claim that crown through Christ my own. There's no fear. There's no fear that we might be rejected at the last. There's no fear that we might not be received into the heavenly kingdom of God for the one who is truly in Christ. All of that is by grace, and, and He will do everything to keep that blessing for us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace alone have you been saved. 
Well, how do we live in light of that? How do you and I, as God's people, live in light of that sovereign grace? I said up front that while I'm sure most of us would give an intellectual assent to what I have just described, the Bible's teaching on sola gratia this morning, the bigger question for us to work through, the question that really matters for us as Christians is how do we live our lives in light of the fact that we actually believe this to be true? Understanding it in my head, having it in my my mind is one thing, but working it out in my day-to-day life is another thing altogether. When it comes to the grace of God, if we're going to sort of mess it up as Christians, we're typically going to end up in one of two camps. Either we become entirely legalistic in our thinking and our practice, and we're, or we're going to become antinomian, which means no law or lawlessness. So one of two, legalist or lawless. You see, the fact that we're saved by grace alone is not an affirmation that we have nothing to do with the law of God at all. Living in the new covenant is not a matter of of completely tossing out the law. We understand that the law is useful and necessary for us as Christians to look to, to know what pleases God, even though we know we can't fulfill it. We know we're not going to do it. We know we didn't do it to earn our salvation, but we're, we're looking to it and we love it because God loves it. It is an expression of His character. It's an expression of His nature. And we want to walk according to it in order to glorify Him. I hope you understand the distinction. I'm not saved by keeping the law. I'm saved by grace alone. But once I'm saved by grace alone, we saw in verse 10 that we are created for good works. What are those good works? Those good works are looking to the law of God and working that out in my life as I am able by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God working in me. And so one way we twist grace away from God is that we tend to introduce legalism. And at the heart of legalism is an attempt to win God's favor apart from the sufficient work of Christ on the behalf of sinners. When Christians fall into legalistic practices, the intentions are usually genuine and the desires are usually admirable. However, the end result is the rotten fruit of self-justification. I have yet to meet a Christian who has consciously assumed that they were seeking to earn God's favor and who thought they were attempting to keep their salvation through works of the law. I've not met that person, yet it is present in the lives of people in the way that they speak of God and in the ways they supposedly go about serving Christ. What about you? Do you have a legal heart? A legal heart continuously produces bad fruit. That is the antithesis of the fruit of the Spirit. A legal heart is one that is easily roused to anger. Are you angry all of the time? A legal heart is bitter. And it condemns others when they don't conform to your standard. I have a way I want things to be, and if others are not going to do what I want them to do, I am going to hold them over that. Why? Because they didn't fulfill my law. And the result of that anger and the result of that bitterness is discontentment and and restlessness. And so we're always on edge. We're always anxious. It's hard to be angry and bitter all of the time, and, and so it, it stirs us up. 
And in the midst of that, a legal heart never has the assurance of God's love because if other people in my life can't live up to my standard, I know for sure I can't live up to God's standard. And so I can never have the contentment. I can never have assurance that I am his and he is mine. A legal heart constantly compares itself with others. Now, the grossest, most blatant forms of legalism are easily identified and, quite frankly, are the very things the Reformers sought to reject in Roman Catholicism is the very things Jesus sought to reject in the Pharisees. But the evangelical Protestant form of legalism is far less obvious. It's very subtle. And it plagues us when we are unaware of its presence. Now, again, I have to reiterate, God's law is necessary for us to know what obedience looks like, and by what means we are made holy and sanctified. However, the battle with legalism enters the fray when we, in any, when we make any attempt to rightly use God's law, but go beyond the bounds of it to ensure that we are keeping it as a means of earning God's favor or a way of securing our salvation. So we can easily slide into what we call legal sanctification. In fact, that's what Paul seems to intimate happened in Galatia. He said to the Galatians in chapter 3, he says, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? In other words, God saved you by grace alone. Is everything now up to you? Are you doing all this on your own by keeping your law? Listen, brothers and sisters, if God to you is an ever-disappointed taskmaster, it is very likely that salvation in your mind is up to you. In other words, if one day you think, God loves me today because of what I'm doing. I'm doing some great things today. I, I, I did a lot of good deeds, and I made sure everyone knew that when I posted it on Facebook. I, it was humble, but it was still bragging. It was a perfect humble brag. But I got it out there, and everyone knows that. And God is very thankful for that today. And He loves me today. But tomorrow... You know, tomorrow someone cut me off in traffic and I mumbled under my breath. They couldn't hear it, only I could, so it didn't matter that much, but I did it anyway. And, uh, and I, was, I was impatient with my coworkers, and I, didn't, I, I lied to my boss. God doesn't love me today. God doesn't love me at all today. Brothers and sisters, if you live in this roller coaster of a life thinking one day God loves you and the next He doesn't, depending upon what you are doing or what you aren't doing, you have not understood grace. You have not understood the right way to look to God's law. Does God want you to be obedient? Yes, He does. Does God want you to love His law and want to to walk in accordance with that? Of course He does. But does God love you more or less each day depending on how many good works you do and how much you share that with the world? If that's what you think, you're controlled by a spirit of legalism. Brothers and sisters, do not abandon the law of God, but make sure that you understand it and know how to rightly apply it. It's not as if, as Christians, we can obey God too much. Nevertheless, we must be assured that we are obeying God and not man and not our own made-up laws. It must be that we're obeying because, because, because God loves us, not in order to make Him love us. 
Your good works will not outweigh your bad. Your aisle walking, your baptism, your church membership. At the end of the day, those are not what God looks to, as important as they are. The truth is, in one sense, we are saved by works, but they're not your own works. They're the works of Jesus Christ on your behalf. The other end of the spectrum is that we live as antinomians, as a lawless people. We live lawlessly. These are the people who have a theological perspective that says, grace, grace, it's all of grace, and so we live our lives the way that we desire to live our lives, and God will be good with it in the end. There are varying degrees of this, but it is the attitude of, I'm forgiven in Christ, so I'm going to do the things in my life that I know are sinful, even though God commands me not to, because in the end, I'll be fine. I have met many of these people. I've sat with people who have said, I know that doing this is not what God wants me to do. I know it is sinful, but... I'm going to do it anyway, and God will forgive me in the end. That is lawless. That is a horrible abuse of the grace of God. This is the mantra of much of what, is, what parades itself today as Christianity. It's a complete twisting of God's truth to say we don't have to obey because God loves us and forgives us. Paul addressed these people in Romans chapter 6. They would say... Well, Paul, if, if you're saying that God's grace is made all the more prominent, if it's, it's on display all the more when we sin, then we should sin all the more so that God's grace can abound all of the more. And Paul said, by no means. He used really nice language. Because he wanted to tell them, what are you thinking? You lawless Devil, what are you thinking? If God's grace abounds when we sin, then we should sin all the more? You don't love God. That's not the heart of one who loves God. It's the heart of one who loves themselves and wants to use God as an excuse to do what they want to do. That's the spirit of antinomianism. Lawlessness. Margaret Perry is a novelist who writes detective stories, and usually set in 19th century London. One of her central characters is a detective named William Monk. His life and adventures are, are very interesting because of an event in his past. He was a police officer in London, and he was thrown from a horse-drawn cab, driven at very high speed, and he survived, but he lost his memory. And so as a result, he finds himself himself in situations where he's at a great disadvantage because he has no memory of what happened to him in the past. He, he doesn't know who he really is, and so he doesn't clearly understand what he's supposed to do. And, and this is the thing that Paul addresses with both legalists and antinomians who are proclaiming the name of Christ. It's fascinating because he doesn't tell legalists that they just need to lighten up and live life a little bit. And he doesn't tell antinomians that they just need a little more obedience in their lives. He tells them that their basic problem is, is that if they're Christians, they've completely lost touch with the person that Scripture says they really are. 
They don't know who they are, and so they don't know what they're supposed to do. They have spiritual amnesia. He tells them that their basic problem is that they never really understood what becoming a Christian meant, which is receiving a new identity in Christ, and that the new identity of the person loved by God, by saving grace alone, is, is not living to earn favor or to stand upon our own righteousness. And, and, and it's not to live the way we want to because God's just going to deal with it in the end. But it's that we live upon Christ's righteousness. And we have the Holy Spirit, and so we are no longer obligated to do the things that the world and the flesh and the devil want us to do. So I'm not living by putting everyone else in my debt and demanding that they perform the things I want them to perform. Because I don't need others to live up to my standards, because my standards don't matter, and I don't need other people's acceptance. I don't need other people's approval. I don't need other people's obedience and acknowledgement because I'm loved by God. So Paul is saying, Christian, you need to understand who you truly are. You are a people with a new citizenship. You are a people with a new heart. And that makes a radical difference in the way you live the Christian life. When you realize you are who you are by grace alone, it releases you from captivity. From the captivity of your sin-entrenched life and from the captivity of trying to make everyone live to your standard. And if you're a legalist, it's easy to read this passage and say, Paul, you're not talking about me. I certainly don't think of myself as someone who has died to sin. And so this sort of false humility. If you're an antinomian, it's easy to read all of this and say, yeah, that's me, so I'll do what I want to do. And Paul is saying that if either of these things is true, a serious accident has taken place. You are like William Monk. You're constantly in situations you don't know how to handle properly because you don't remember who you are. You don't clearly understand your identity in Christ. You are always trying to piece things together and make sense of them, but never getting the picture clearly. So you resort to what comes naturally to you, either to ratchet up the law or to downplay everything and party hard. But when you understand that in Christ, you died to sin and you've been delivered from the dominion of sin, you are no longer under its bondage, that you no longer need to be a victim of its subtle paralysis, then you find yourself not only saying, isn't grace amazing? But what glorious freedom Jesus Christ has bought for me on the cross. Brothers and sisters, has Jesus truly bought you glorious freedom from the cross? Are you saved by grace alone? If the answer is yes, then we, you and I, need to know who we truly are. And we can live in light of that day by day. Not ratcheting up the law to conform to a standard. Not downplaying it, doing what we want. But living with new hearts by grace, day by day, to glorify God.